I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. This is also, I know I say this all the time, but, you know, it's not often that you have someone that you've known since the day you were born, because as I remind Tamron very often, she's a few months older than me, so she will always be older than me. So please, uh, you know, welcome Tamron Jacobson. So obviously by the last name, it might give away that there is a, uh, a familial connection. Tamron happens to be my first cousin and as I mentioned, uh, someone who I grew up with, uh, we were the same age. Uh, and we'll get into the, the, the schooling competition that she almost always won. But uh, just by, by way of background, uh, Tamron is a partner within Goodman's uh, litigation team. She deals with uh, general corporate litigation and arbitration. And uh, Tam, thank you very much for, uh, for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Elon. I've been looking forward to it. So... Obviously, given the accent that you have and that I don't have, um, you know, I was born in South Africa, as most people know, but I moved here a little earlier. Maybe we could just start there. I always love to hear a little bit about people's backgrounds and, you know, coming from a different country always kind of gives you a, you know, a different view, you know, on life. Maybe not so much in Canada because we all came from somewhere in Canada, but maybe just talk through, you know, your early childhood and you know, kind of the beginning parts of moving to Canada as well. Yeah. So, I mean, as as you know, I I was born in Durban, South Africa, same as you, and came over to Canada after the first semester of high school. So it was kind of an interesting time to go, right? I mean, six months earlier, and everybody would have been new in the situation. Six months into high school was a little bit odd because people had you know, sort of made friends, made connections. Obviously, they had their friends from elementary school, but it was kind of a good time, right? It's not like coming in elementary school where everybody's got their groups of friends and stuff like that. And I was lucky to have um, a first cousin my age, which was a nice way to uh, insert myself into Canadian society, get the goods on everybody and and, and get stuff. I was certainly a big change moving from South Africa, let's say that, you know, having grown up there, it's, as you know, a a very different way of living. Let's touch on that, because I think it is very interesting that you say that, because I agree, you know, from from your perspective, when you say it's a different way of living, what are some of the things that you can still see in your character, maybe some of the things that led to some of your successes that kind of start in that different way of living? I mean, I think it's different in a lot of ways. And I think South Africa as a country has also changed a lot from when I was there during my childhood and and growing up was apartheid for the first number of years of, of my life and, you know, had the first democratic election pretty shortly before I moved, which is kind of crazy to think about. It's so nuts. People think it's like this massive thing in the past. And like, we're old, but we're not that old. We're not that old, exactly. It, it, it's, it's crazy, right? And to think that 
I grew up in a time where black people couldn't vote. You know, I, I grew up with black brother and my parents couldn't take him to certain restaurants, to certain beaches, to various schools. It's it's certainly a very different. And, and I think, you know, South Africa has obviously evolved a lot since those times and improved a lot. But I think that gave me a, a sense of injustice that I, I carry forward and sort of think about a lot. For sure. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the one thing that Canada's great is like, everything's roses and fairy dust, right? Like, like, we don't deal with a lot of hard shit here. Like, let's just be honest. You know, especially when it comes to like social injustice. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. Of course it does. But if you want to compare it to apartheid in South Africa, there is no comparison. And like you mentioned, you know, my, my cousin and your, your brother, uh, you know, is black and you, you, you witnessed the discrimination firsthand. You know, it, it, it definitely does change you in interesting ways. And, and I think Canada is probably a good falling off point for someone who really despises that level of injustice. I agree. I mean, I, I think for sure the stark difference between those two regimes is is very apparent and South Africa is still working through it. In in some ways, though, it does, you know, apartheid is very easy to think about and know everybody thinks that's wrong. I mean, I can't think of one human in Canada that would agree with apartheid or think it's a, a good thing, but it's but it's very easy to condemn. I, I think that there are much more, Canada is a great place to be. It's better than, I think it's the best place in the world. It's better than a lot of countries in a lot of ways, including injustices. But uh, there are some injustices that I think go a little bit more under the radar because they're, they're not quite as obvious as apartheid. <laughs> So this is it's interesting. I mean, this actually just came to my head. I'm going to run with it. You know, we you were speaking about injustice, and it, it strikes me as interesting that you're a litigator, right? I mean, you fight for a living for what you believe is an injustice done upon your clients. I mean, that's a you know it's a simplified way of saying it. But have you ever made that connection? Is it something that you think about? I mean, I know me and you in particular we're naturally probably combative. We we're not we're not wallflowers. Um, but do you think that something to do with your childhood led you into litigation in particular? I'm not sure whether anything particular in my childhood. I think um, my parents will tell you that I always loved arguing, <laughs> which is um, I've always been somebody who's been very vocal of my viewpoints and liked debating small points, even if I didn't necessarily believe in them, just for the fun of it. So I think that certainly had an influence in what I do now. I would say I'm more often on the side of justice, but I wish it were the case that I was always on the side of uh, good. There, you know, there's mandates and everybody deserves a good, uh, a good case. And it's actually, I find, uh, much more challenging, but sometimes a lot more interesting to litigate a case that you don't feel, you know, isn't as obviously sympathetic. You're not, you're not obviously wearing the white hat in those situations. I think those ones are... Are the ones that involve a lot more strategic thinking and thinking through how you're how you're going to get through the case and, and succeed in the end. I mean, you know, I'm going to ask you kind of a loaded question because I, I know the, the, the characters uh, very well. But, you know, maybe talk a little bit because, uh, you know, as you know, I, I speak about nature and nurture. But by definition, you know, I think our, our nature is a lot more similar than than most people just by, you know, by proxy of us being related. 
But your nurturization is, is interesting as well. I mean, maybe you could talk about your parents and, and, and how you think they helped shape you, you know, in, into who you are and, and, and what your childhood looked like from like a rearing standpoint. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I uh, often joke with my parents uh, that I'm not quite sure how I'm still alive today. I think that is, is less an impact of my particular parents and perhaps more related to growing up in South Africa and growing up in a different time than we do now. But I always laugh at what my parents allowed me to do and explore. And it's quite surprising I didn't get myself killed. <laughs> um, but I, I think that did do a lot to shape me into being an independent person. It would have been unfortunate if an accident had happened, I think. Um, but they, they certainly always encouraged me to experiment, to learn, to not be afraid to fail at what I was doing and encouraged. I mean, I think of my mom when I think of somebody who loves learning and loves learning about things. And that's something that I've always carried with me. And I'm interested in that. And litigation uh, ended up being a fantastic fit for me for that, because I, you know, get a case, it may be about the retail industry and a particular type of product in the retail industry. You learn sort of all about that product. I could talk about honey or particular issues in mines or, you know, settlement and construction actions and you get to learn all sorts of new and interesting things and then you're done with the case and you can forget it and you'll sort of never use it again but it's uh satisfied my i guess my curiosity or um i i'm able to get paid for learning sort of interesting things about different industries i want to transition you know because you know i view you as a, as a very powerful type a you know woman and you know you're let's just be frank you're you're in a what would stereotypically probably be a male dominated area of law in particular. I think about this all the time, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I think that we were really fortunate in that our family, as you know, is matriarchal, right? I mean, in our family units, the moms are the bosses. We have a lot of strong women, yes. Very much so. Uh, and quite frankly, I think that uh, strong men come from strong women, so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But maybe talk through, you know, entering into the area of litigation. I mean, did you come across things that were blatantly sexist and that you felt were uh, kind of uphill battle? I mean, how did you deal with that? You know, were you, were you surprised by it? Because I would probably think you didn't have to deal with sexism in the, in, in the home life and in the family life. Maybe talk about that because I think that you're in such a dichotomous area. It's such a spotlight, I think, in an interesting way. Yeah, I mean, I think law, like most professions, certainly has, I'll say, a bias against against women. I think I was expecting that, and I think it uh, turned out to be true in a lot of respects, although I think I was very lucky with where I ended up in a law firm and my situation. I don't think that I was held back because of, because of my gender at all, but I can give you plenty of instances where people, when I was junior and even more recently, thought I was the court reporter and the associate was the, the male associate was the lawyer who was significantly less experienced than me. So I don't think I've certainly never experienced outright harassment in the workplace, but I think that there is an underlying 
obstacle to being a female lawyer in the city. And that's certainly not specific to Goodman's because Goodman's is, is great and I've obviously excelled. But, you know, you look at, as an example, more than 50% of the graduates of law school are women. So there's, there's actually more women lawyers than there are men graduating. But you look at the partnership level and it's probably closer to 20, 25% women. And so you have to ask questions about why that is. It's not entirely explained by an older generation being men and this doesn't happen anymore because there is drop off by females in the legal profession sort of all along the way to partnership. And so I think that there are a lot of underlying forces that sort of subtly play into that. You've been incredibly successful in your career. You've moved up pretty much as fast as you can move up. You became partner pretty much as fast as you can become partner. What is it? I mean, men or women, doesn't matter. You were successful, period. What is it that you think you did right in your career? And I know you and I know how modest you are, so I know this is going to be uncomfortable. But the reason I ask this is because what I'm really hoping to get is, you know, some pieces of advice for people that are listening to this that want to achieve that really want to put the work in, but maybe aren't making the right decisions. Patterns of behavior that you can look at, look back at, you know, right strategic moves you made, um, you know, that, that, that resulted in that progression outside of you just being hardworking and smart. Because I think those, those are, you, you have to have those. Those are, those, are, those are playing stakes, in my opinion. For sure. And thank you. I, I would say I'm hardworking and smart, but I, I, I certainly think that there is a lot of hard work involved. I think throughout... I was somebody who, because given my nature, liked questioning things. And I think from even when I was a first year associate articling student, summer student, I got involved and questioned things. If a partner explained to me what they wanted to do on a file, I wouldn't necessarily just go and do it. I'd think about it and think about whether I thought that was the best way of doing something, whether I thought I could you know, tweak it, contribute, challenge it. And I don't think that this is necessarily the case at all firms, but it was something that for me, I think made me stand out because I think you have a lot of people who, you know, a partner tells you to do something and you go and do it and you don't question, you don't, you don't ask if that's the right approach, you don't challenge it. And uh, whether that's because of a, a fear or, you know, an obedience, you don't want to be yelled at, you don't want to look stupid. I've, I don't know if it's confidence or just interest or perhaps stubbornness, but have always, have always wanted to do that and try to add value as opposed to just doing the work. It's a great point because like, I think to myself all the time, like how can you get an outlying result, right? Like i.e. move up in your career at a, at a pace that's exceptional by just going with the flow. Like those things are contradictory, but by definition, you're going to land up with everyone else if you just go with flow. For sure. For sure. I, I think also, I mean, in terms of advice for people, people often talk about mentorship, which is obviously very, very important. I had a lot of formal and informal mentors to sort of bounce stuff ideas about. But uh, something that's perhaps less talked about, and I think much more important for success is sponsors and sponsorship and finding a person or people, multiple people that, you know, you can't just pick somebody and be like, hey, Len, will you be my sponsor? Because 
what does he care? But once you've been in a situation where you've worked with somebody a lot, you've proven that you're capable and hardworking and all of those things, leaning, like trying to get that person involved in not only mentoring you, but sponsoring you in terms of giving you access to their networks, letting them give you opportunities like writing articles or direct meetings with clients or using their reputation and networks to sort of bring you up is probably the best advice I can give. And also something that I think, you know, us now is sort of much more established in our careers. I look to try and do that for people as opposed to just mentorship, which is important, but not doesn't go quite as far as you need. I haven't even thought of this point, but I love it. You know, for me, I guess in my career in particular, I've been an entrepreneur and I've I've never really had a, what you would call a quote unquote sponsor. I've definitely had mentors. And I guess part of me, which is you know naive of me, is like, I would never work out in a large organization because I don't play the fucking political game at all, period. Which you're actually like me a lot. Like you're not gonna be fake about it. So how do you, you know, when you have that, that those individuals that say like, I'm not gonna just like kiss ass and, and just like fake someone into, you know, having a vested interest in my success. How do you do that in, in an authentic way and establish meaningful relationships where, where like also like you're getting you're giving them something in return? Because I would have to assume it's got to be symbiotic. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of you know what I talk about sponsorship. I certainly I don't think I'd ever heard that word until a few years ago, and I did not set out to to say, oh, you corner partner, you corner partner. I'd like you to sponsor me and bring me up. Um, so a lot of that is, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, thinking back on on what or what did happen organically. But for sure, I mean, you you build relationships with people, you build trust with people, and it's not necessarily you asking them to do you favors, but by proving yourself to people, you might be able to get them. They want to advance your career. You know, you you invest with people. You have authentic real relationships with people. And the people who I, in hindsight, consider sponsors are people that I had genuine connections with. And I think proved myself by working through a whole bunch of cases with, by asking the tough questions, by going that extra mile, by trying to add value as opposed to just work. I think it's sort of probably more luckily than anything else lucked out for me. But in in hindsight, I I try and give uh, people that advice when I'm speaking to young lawyers or associates. I was recently on a panel on how to make partner and remember discussing discussing that. But it's you're right, it's interesting. It's I certainly never set out to do that. It sort of happened more naturally. Yeah, but I think I think it's kind of natural human nature. I mean if you know that this, you know, like even mammalian nature, it's like if you know this is the top dog and you know being close to the top dog typically helps. Right. I mean, even if it's not even if it's not a conscious thing, it could be a subconscious thing. So it's really interesting. Um, the one thing I was going to ask you about that is I think a lot of people know all these things. And I'm amazed at how many people don't progress in their career when they really should. They're talented enough. They work hard enough simply because they don't ask. They just don't ask. And it's amazing to me how many things will come to you if you have the chutzpah to to actually ask and put yourself out there. 
I don't know if you've observed that, you know, amongst people in your, you know, your line of work or you, you yourself, like, I know you're not scared to ask. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's funny because I'm very opinionated. I actually do not naturally ask for things of uh, people, sort of friends or people in the workplace. I'm sort of the exact person you're describing <laughs> where I, I don't like asking. I think it is something that people benefit from a lot. But I have always had trouble for, with that. And I think, you know, people who are better at that probably do get more things. And, you know, jumping back to the gender discussion we were having, I think typically men are more willing to ask for things than women, in at least studies have said and from people's experience. Yeah, it's called the agreeableness. Jordan Peterson speaks about it a lot. Yeah, agreeableness and I think confidence in and not not wanting to ruffle feathers. I mean, I think I think you you end up doing a lot more work if you're not somebody who's willing to to ask for the support you need because you sort of have to prove yourself and do a lot more work to sort of show that you're capable. You mentioned that you you know you you think that's one of your weaknesses, I guess. I'm I'm, I'm extrapolating, but you know, I know for a fact that you probably make up for it in spades with the competitive spirit, right? I mean, my question is, how important is that competitive spirit and, and, and the desire for competition, uh, in your opinion, uh, in, in progressing oneself? Because in my opinion, it's one, of the, it's one of the things that drive me. I'm driven more by the desire not to lose than, than the desire to win. I'm just incredibly, incredibly competitive, as you know. Do you think about competition and, and, and what role that plays? I have a job where competition is sort of with every file I have. It's one of the things I love about it. But for sure, for every case you, you have, whether it's a strong case or a weak case, it's a fight. And it's a, my entire job is figuring out how I can win that <laughs> in various cases, despite all odds in some cases. I certainly love some good competition. I think a lot of my career, people think I'm a litigator and I'm overly aggressive. I find in the day-to-day, -day, most of my files, I often say you catch more flies with honey. And, you know, there's sort of a, a time and a place in my career where I think aggression is, is needed and sort of being super competitive in a particular area. But a lot more of the time, I find that you end up getting what you want more and your clients get what they want more by being a nice person and being an agreeable person. Um, so it's sort of a, a balancing act for me. But I, I certainly, I do like a good fight when, I, when it comes along. You're speaking right now about kind of external competition as it relates to your job. How does one, let's just call it a spade a spade, like becoming a partner is, is in a way a zero-sum game, right? Like there is only a few, there's a, there's a, there's a few spots and there's, and there's a bunch of people. How do you balance the desire to want to be the top dog and become the partner? And, and, and I'm using th this as an example, but it could be anything in, in anyone's career, with the desire to want to be a good teammate, right? I mean, you have to compete, but you have to be a good teammate. Like those things go hand in hand, but they, they are in a way, you know, they clashes. It's interesting. And I think perhaps this might be by virtue of the firm that I'm at and maybe the type of person I am. But I, throughout my career, 
have never really considered myself to be competing with other people in my firm. Well, I bet you the people who didn't make partner thought they were competing. <laughs> that, that might be true. I mean, I think you end up having a natural drop and I think that that innately comes through. But it, 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 it's interesting you raise that because I've just never really thought about it like that. I know before I went to law school, people talked about, I went to UFT and people spoke about UFT being crazy competitive and you know, students ripping pages out of the library textbooks so other people couldn't get them and didn't experience that at all. And then, I don't know, perhaps it's being a little bit naive, but I didn't really think about competing with my teammates within my firm. And I, But I, I do think that that is partly a, a result of how Goodman's operates and its sort of structure. You know, I think as an example, uh, some firms in the US and in Canada publish associate billable hours to everyone. So you can sort of see where you are exactly, how you're doing compared to your peers. We never had that and sort of were encouraged to build each other up more than not. So that's interesting. I, I, I'm not sure. It's, a, it's an excellent question. And I'm perhaps being a little bit naive, but I, did, I never really felt too much competition with others in my firm. It's so interesting that you say that because it's like I know you on a personal level and I know that you'd rather die than let, let, than let someone win in a, in a Monopoly game. Oh, that's definitely true. <laughs> There's no chance. So it's, uh, it is interesting. I, I, and I guess if you can fall back, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm a massive believer in meritocracy, right? I mean, that's, that's what matters to me most. I don't care what your age, your sex, your, well, I don't care, race, whatever it is. If you're good enough, you're good enough. If you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And, uh, you know, I think that overachievers love meritocracy for that reason, because, you know, you're not competing because you, you've been winning. That's the ultimate truth. I mean, and so, so, so my question to you, and I'm not, you know, this is, you know, I know that makes you uncomfortable, but the reality is there's a lot of people that have to work their asses off for things that come naturally to other people. I'm not going to use you as an example, because I know that'll make you feel uncomfortable. So how should someone who has to work so hard to achieve the same result as someone else, because of my belief that nature is nature and there are people that are born with certain IQs and others that aren't. What would you tell someone in that position to, you know, keep them motivated down that path? Like, do you think that you can outwork someone who's just so much more talented than you? I think nature has a very profound effect on our strengths and our weaknesses and our tendencies. I'm no matter how much I train, I'm never going to be Mozart or Serena Williams or anything like that. Those are innate abilities. And nurture sort of overlays that and I think can enhance or decrease your strengths and weaknesses depending on, on where you are. And I think nurture, you know, people often think of nurture as like how your parents raised you. Did your parents raise you well, et cetera, et cetera. I think of nurture as a little bit more than that in terms of where you were born. I was born in South Africa. That contributed a lot to who I am. What neighborhood you grew up in, your education, your, your ability to access education, your socioeconomic status. So I think that there is nature. I think that there is nurture. And I think that although I strongly believe in a meritocracy, I think that there are some barriers to meritocracy in some situations. Yeah, life's not fair. 
that that is the reality of it all, you know, and uh, the second you try and make it fair, something else becomes unfair. So, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I'm a I'm a very firm believer in a true meritocracy. And I think that we're doing a lot of work as a society at the moment to ensure that we're truly a meritocracy and working towards a true meritocracy, um, as opposed to sometimes having some of our biases determine what is a meritocracy. Yeah, like it, I, I know exactly what you're saying. You know, is, is it a meritocracy if people don't have the same opportunity, right? I mean, you know, but, but then, then it's, you know, are you solving for equal opportunity? Or are you solving for equal results of it all, right? So, I mean, it's, uh, they're tough questions for sure. So, like, I, I don't want to just gloss over that. I was about to. But I know I, I know I can, uh, can, can do something interesting here. So what? Okay, so what I mean by this is like, okay, I, I agree with these things. What the hell can I do? Outside of being someone who believes in my heart of heart that I, I don't care what you are, gender, sex, race, and not be those things and stand next to people that are, are fighting against injustice, what else can I be doing? Because sometimes like, I feel kind of overwhelmed, especially given the situation that we're in right now. I mean, we can't just ignore the, the political environment that we're in currently, you know, but I think I throw my hands up sometimes and say, what the fuck could I do? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question. If I knew the answer, I should run for president, I think. Um, think Probably just as qualified. (laughs) Hopefully a little bit more currently. Um, I think everybody, including myself, including you, including every human being on the planet has biases. And I think a lot of a way to improve that is sort of thinking about what those biases are and acknowledge that they influence your decision making. And I try and do that now a lot, thinking about, you know, before I make a snap decision, thinking about, am I making this decision based on particular biases? And, and sometimes well-meaning, like I'll give you a great example. I'm not a, a mother, so I, you know, it's not a personal example, but women lawyers are, are often mothers. <laughs> And once women have children, there are a number of examples of, you know, the partner on the file to, a, to an associate not asking the woman if she wants to be involved in a file because he thinks he's doing a good thing because, you know, she's a young mother, has a new child. She doesn't really want to be on this file that has a lot of hours involved in it or perhaps a lot of travel. Um, pre-COVID maybe. Uh, And instead of asking uh, this woman if she wants to be involved in a file or what she would like her uh, work to be like, he thought he was doing a good thing and said, you know, I'm not going to give this to this woman because she's a mom and she's got a whole bunch of responsibilities and she probably wouldn't want to travel. So I'll give it to this person. And, And those kinds of decisions, I think, have a great influence in how your career evolves and the opportunities that you're that you're given. Interesting example because a lot of people think about bias affecting others when someone's making a decision that they think is or maybe they're they're justifying as fine. When it actually could be literally thinking that they're doing a good thing. Like genuinely believing that they are that they're 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 a hero in that situation. I think that that is a hundred percent. It is particularly in Canada where I think most of us are trying to be good people. The problems that we have with respect to 
gender and race, which are not nearly as bad as other parts of the world, I think are, are all in that, in that vein and the much more unconscious bias, thinking that, you know, perhaps thinking that you're doing a good thing. That's not unconscious. That's still a conscious bias. Like, it, is it you're trying to do a good thing, right? Like, you, you certainly wouldn't think that you're trying to, that you're limiting somebody's career by not giving them the file that has, you know, direct client interaction and late nights and travel. I don't know. It, it's, a, it's a tough topic. You walked in perfectly. I've had this in the back of my head since the second we started talking. And you mentioned something that I'm going to dive into. You said, especially in Canada, most people are trying to be good people. Okay. I want to ask you some direct questions because I think you're in such an interesting like, work environment where you probably see the worst of people more often than other people would, okay? And I can tell you as an entrepreneur, I mean, I'm a, half, a glass half full. I, I would say it's full even when it's half full. Like, I think you have to have that kind of mentality. But I will tell you that I've been challenged over and over again in my career by unethical, immoral decisions and people. And I would like to think so often that the average person is a good person. They won't steal. They won't cheat. They won't lie. And as I get older, I'm questioning that, that, that statement more and more. Fortunately for me, I don't let it affect what I think is the right thing to do and the right morality and the right ethics because I have two kids and period, I want to be a good, I want to be a good person. But in your experience, are people good? Oh, wow. I, I mean, I think that on average, people are good. And I like to approach people thinking that they're going to be good. But in the back of my mind, looking out for signs that that's not the case. And I think that might be the best of both worlds, right? Because it's interesting because in law, it's kind of a small profession, at least with respect to what I do, sort of the big downtown firms. And your reputation is everything. If you're in court and you exaggerate your case to a judge, you know, say that the evidence says something it doesn't say and the judge fans out, the judge isn't going to trust you next time. If you are super sneaky to another lawyer, that lawyer becomes known as a slimy lawyer and nobody trusts them. So it's a little bit different because I think the ethics and morality with respect to the lawyers that I practice with is quite high. But what about but the clients? Certainly not always clients. People definitely lie. They definitely cheat. I've had uh, lots of cases where people have done some pretty bad things and you have to be wary about it. I mean, it, all, that's the case with everybody, even with people, even with other lawyers. I think you have to be wary of people not doing what's what's right and not doing what's in their best interest. But if you, I guess how I look at it is I treat everybody like I think they're a good person. I treat everybody with respect. But with skepticism. But with skepticism. It, I think that's exactly it. Isn't that like, it, like taking a step back, like it's kind of depressing. It really is. Like I think about that and I think about that statement because I agree with you. I mean, you know, outside of a few select people that are on, you know, like my team of people that are around me, you kind of have a fiduciary responsibility for those people around you to be skeptical. But just imagine you lived your life with your family and had to have that same sort of mentality. I mean, thank God, you, you know, most people have a reprieve with hopefully good friends or family or both around them. But I can tell you, like, 
there are times where I'm going through hard situations where I, I just cannot believe this person's doing this to me. And I can't put myself in their shoes because it's just straight up theft, lying, unethics. It's just selfishness. And it's like, I've had to train myself really hard to not become a cynic. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's fair. I think that's true. I mean, certainly not everybody is honest or nice or does the right thing. And I mean, I think you'd be a little bit silly to assume that everybody is and act that way. But it's, it's a tough call, I guess. How do you, because I know you're a passionate person. You clearly have passion for what you do. How does one stay passionate? And this is just, this is a, a generic question. How does one stay passionate when, you know, we spoke about injustice, we speak about all these things where when, you know, you're seeing bad things around you, whatever that bad thing is, you know, whether it be people cheating you or, you know, using immoral tactics to try and, you know, outcompete you, whatever it might be, how do you stay on the straight and narrow stay true to yourself, stay ethical, and stay motivated? What I always live by is my, for myself, wanting to live in a way that I will be proud of. That when I'm explaining what I did to my kids or grandkids about my life, that I won't have regrets about the way that I treated people and the things that I did to get where I am in life. And, you know, whether that's dealing with murky ethical issues, whether it's about treating people with respect or avoiding sharp practice. I think that's certainly a motto that I try to live by. And it sort of links back to, you know, what I was saying previously about it actually being quite helpful in the long run. Like I do it for my well-being, but I think that you end up personally developing a reputation that can be very easily lost. And if you lose it, it's gone. You know, your, in, your reputation in the industry is excellent. People know that you're not going to lie to them. People know that you're not going to cheat them. And if, you, if that breaks just once, like just one time, your, your reputation will follow you forever. And that hopefully for, the, for those of us who don't sort of naturally think about the well-being and want to be a good person, that should try and mitigate against people trying to do that because I, you're not going to win in the long run. You know, you'll get, a, you'll get away with insider trading for some amount of time and then you won't. Uh, you'll get away with cheating and, and then you won't. And, and quite frankly, even if you did, at some point in time, you're going to feel unfulfilled accomplishing something through cheating. I, I truly believe that. Like, I think a massive amount of fulfillment comes from doing things the right way and being proud of it. I love that word proud. You know, I, I, you said, you know, some, 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 some to be proud of, like I say, you know, I, I want to be able to look myself in the mirror and like the person I am and, and believe that I'm a, a good human being. For sure. For sure. And I mean, I think that also ties back to, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about authenticity and, you know, not pretending you're something you're not. And your career is a long period of time. If you don't love it, you don't feel passionate about it. And if you aren't going to do it, authentically and in, in a way that feels good to you, it's, it's a long career to pretend you're something else or pretend you're something that you're not. Great point. So, so Tam, I want to I ask you one more question. I know we have about 10 minutes left and I, I promise I will abide by the, by the hour. I mean, I can ask you questions for days, but uh, we've spoken about a few things here. We've spoken about competition. We've spoken about you know, fairness and unfairness and injustice and you know, all these things. 
And, you know, a huge part of business and, you know, this is called a deal maker's DNA is the art of negotiation. So how, you know, I mean, you, you professionally negotiate, you've probably seen the best and the worst tactics. What do you think makes a great negotiator, an ethical negotiator? And what do people get really wrong, in your opinion, as it relates to that art of negotiation? It goes back to authenticity, I think, honestly. A lot of people think negotiators are the ones who necessarily pound their fists on the table or yell the loudest or are the most aggressive. And sometimes that works. For some people, that works. But you have to figure out what works for you. And I think your tactics depend on the situation you're in. I think about very carefully how I'm going to negotiate a file if I'm going into a mediation or a settlement. And I change the way that I negotiate for every file. Like it depends on who's the lawyer on the other side, who's my client, who's the other client. If if it's a mediation, who's the mediator and really play to what I think is going to be the most effective in that particular situation. And sometimes it's pounding your fists on the table. Sometimes it's being really nice. Sometimes it's being overly nice. Sometimes it's trying to figure out how, you know, you're negotiating about one thing, but how you can bring in a different thing to try and solve that one thing. And I think more than anything else, it's being adaptive to the situation that you're in. And actually taking the time to think about that. Because I think a lot of people treat life or in my case, litigation files sort of all the same and have, and have one practice that they go through. Whereas I spend you know, a significant amount of time at the beginning of my files thinking about what is my client's actual goal in this situation and how am I gonna get there? You know, most cases settle. So it's it's not always about winning. It's about getting to that settlement point and where my client wants to be. And sort of every step along the way, whether it's drafting a statement of defense, whether to bring a motion or not bring a motion, how to negotiate, how to do every step in the litigation, I try to bring myself back to what is the ultimate goal and is what I'm doing right now directed towards that goal? Is it going to assist that goal or is it not going to assist that goal? Because if it's not going to assist that goal, I don't want to bring a motion if it's going to cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and not contribute towards that ultimate goal. You're talking about high level EQ. Like as you're, as you're speaking, it's so obvious to me, you know, I say that business is more psychology than anything else. I genuinely believe that. It's funny that you say that. I I have my undergrad in, in psychology. And I think it was the most helpful thing for litigation and business in general. Learning social psychology and whether you call it social psychology, whether you call it EQ, how people operate, understanding how people operate, understanding their motivations and what might influence people is, I think, the best skill you can, you can learn. That's really interesting. You just said that, the best skill you can learn. I'm a massive believer that there's characteristics that are for sure nature and nurture. To me, EQ, I use EQ and kind of self-awareness interchangeably in a way. I genuinely believe it is a nature-driven characteristic. People are born 
self-aware and others are born not self-aware. Do you really believe that you can learn that skill set at a high level if you are not self-aware? <laughs> I think it is one of those things where people have natural strengths and weaknesses that can be honed with nurture, whether that's outside influences or actual specific training. As an example, social psychology, anybody can pick up a social psychology textbook and realize that there's you know, such a thing as primacy and recency effect, where people remember the first thing you say and the last thing you say more than stuff in the middle and can adapt to that. So I think that there are portions of psychology and, and motivation that are, that are learned. But I, I mean, I certainly agree with you. People have natural tendencies one way or the other. You meet a lot of people in life where, you know, they're just oblivious to what's going on around them and reading the room. So I think it's a natural ability that is, that can be strengthened or weakened based on, based on training and, and not bringing. So, so if I have to, if I put you on the spot and said, what percent of, uh, is nature and nurture? What, what, what would you say? Of, of EQ and... No, sorry. just like of, of, of someone's personality, of, of someone. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer like, that we are 80% nature, 20% nurture, right? And, and most people disagree with me. They think that it's the opposite way around. Yeah, I think it's at most 50-50, perhaps leaning more towards nurture than towards nature. Fair enough. So, Tam, th- th- thank you so much for participating. Uh, you know, before, before you, you head out, you know, there's a lot of young entrepreneurs, both women and men, who are going to be listening to this. And, you know, you've, you've done so much in, a, in, you know, you may not view it as a short career, but a fairly short career, given, you know, what you've accomplished. Is there any advice you can give people? I mean, I, I've heard a few things along the way. I, I love that idea of sponsorship. I love that idea of being inquisitive and, you know, not going to, you know, not, not just going to flow. Is there anything else you, you, you know, you mentioned around that out? I think at, at every stage, no matter what industry you're in, trying to find a way to differentiate yourself by adding value, doing something that's beyond your, you know, written job description is always going to be beneficial. Just as a completely stupid example, if I have a client who's coming in and I've seen that they really like Diet Coke, I'll make sure I have Diet Coke at my next meeting. (laughs) You know, that's one stupid example. But in every situation, just going that step above and beyond to think about how you can add value more than the next person. Like, what are you doing that's different and better than just your job description and what you're doing in life is a great suggestion. Great advice. So for those listening that uh, are looking for the, you know, the best litigator in Canada, how do they get a hold of you? <laughs> Thanks very much. I'm on the Goodman's website. Tamron Jacobson, please. I'd love to speak to any of you. I appreciate it, Tim. Thank you so much. And uh, until next time on uh, Dealmakers DNA. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on a Dealmakers DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.